the, the guy that stole the car was a five-time felon, had previously been involved with a car theft, had been suspected of a prior car theft at Avis. So he testified in the second trial that getting hired at Avis was like hiring a child molester at a daycare center. Oh, man. Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good morning, friends and lovers of the law, and welcome to See You in Court. I am Robin Fraser-Clark, and with us here today is our spectacular co-host, Lester Tate. Lester? Hey Robin, how are you this how are you this morning? And, uh, I'm and, doing and a belated happy birthday. We should <laughs> we should call this Robin's Robin's birthday podcast. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. I, I got a lot of very, very nice uh, messages and text and social media reaching out and, and just makes your birthday bearable. <laughs> I start I started to say that our, our birthdays were a scant two weeks apart. Um, but uh, but that would not do you justice because mine was a couple of years, I think, or more before <laughs> yeah. yours. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. But who's counting? That's right. That's right. Well, today we are going to be talking about mainly about premises liability cases, but really about a, a variety of cases, kind of large in litigation, very serious cases. Um, now, our guest is the guy who wrote the book on premises liability, uh, but he's also involved in a lot of other cutting-edge litigation that we're going to talk about. And our guest is a trial lawyer, Mike Neff. We are excited to have Mike join us today. Let me tell you a little bit more about Mike. Mike Neff is uh, the owner and founder of the law firm Neff Injury Law here in Atlanta, Neff Injury Law handles premises cases, trucking cases, products liability, automobile cases, and nursing home cases. He is the author of the book, Premises Liability, A Guide to Success, and has written a second book, Advanced Premises Liability, A Guide Through Trial, uh, published by Trial Guides. From 2011 to 2017, Mike has been lead counsel in trials in which juries have returned verdicts of more than $100 million totaled. One of those verdicts was in the Martin v. Six Flags case, in which the jury awarded the plaintiff a verdict of $35 million, which we're going to talk about. He was also lead counsel in back-to-back trials against Avis Renicar, in which the jury returned verdicts totaling $54 million dollars. Uh, those have unfortunately unfortunately been reversed by the Georgia Supreme Court, and we're going to talk about that and the impact that appeals have on cases. And we're going to talk about some cutting-edge cases that Mike has brought against Snapchat that look promising. Mike is an active participant in the American Association for Justice and serves on the executive committee for AAJ's Traumatic Brain Injury Litigation Group and Inadequate Security Litigation Group. In 2014, he served as the chair of AAJ's Complex Regional Pain Syndrome Litigation Group. Mike earned his law degree from the Pennsylvania State University 
Dickinson School of Law in 1993. You can learn more about Mike on his web website, Neff, that's N-E-F-F, injurylaw.com, neffinjurylaw.com. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for the invite. Good morning, Mike, and it's okay to talk about the Nittany Nittany Lions, too. You may be excited about (laughs) them uh, as well this fall as a Penn State grad. Well, I actually went to uh, college at George Washington, and we did not have a football team, so I have to, I guess, take my associations where I can get them. And uh, Penn State is definitely a big deal uh, up north, for sure. Have you adopted the Georgia Bulldogs? Yes, and the Yellow Jackets. I, I went to a city school, so um, I, I, I have some affection for uh, the folks on the flats just because I kind of grew up in, in, a, in a bigger city, so to speak, in D.C., that forever endears you to my heart uh, as a uh, Yellow Jacket alum, uh, Mike. You just don't know uh, the, the, the warmth that spreads over me hearing uh, that we have sidewalk <laughs> alumni as well. Yeah, the, the, those tech fans are few and far between, so we really rejoice when, when we get one. Well, yeah, it's a little tougher rooting for the Jackets, but uh, I like the underdogs. Me too. Don't we all? I mean, as plaintiff's attorneys... Isn't mm-hmm. that kind of why we do what we do? We like the underdog. Pretty much. Um, Mike, let's start the, the, the show by having you tell our listeners a little bit about your career. We know where you went to law school. Why did you go to law school? Why did you become a lawyer? And mm-hmm. tell us just a little bit about it, why you decided to, to become a lawyer and, and what your practice is like. Yeah, well, that's kind of a circuitous path in a sense, uh, but in a sense, maybe predestined. Um, my middle name is Lawson, L-A-W-S-O-N, because I am the son of two lawyers. And so I grew up at the dinner table hearing about the practice of law in central New Jersey. And some days after school, um, was stuck in that conference room doing homework while things were happening uh, in, in this middle New Jersey law practice. And then I went to law school and thought, or then I went to college and thought I wanted to be a stockbroker. Mm-hmm. And then Black Monday rolled around and I thought, maybe I don't want to be a stockbroker anymore. Maybe I want to get into something where I can control what happens. And that was a naive thought. Um, but <laughs> that kind of turned me to law school. And so I went to law school initially thinking I would do real estate law or real estate development. And by the second week, I was getting called by the torts professor to argue for the plaintiffs in almost every case, because kind of subconsciously, I had been answering the first two weeks always for the plaintiff. And I think that rooting for the underdog kind of was, you know, ingrained in me. And without really knowing that that was the plan, all of a sudden, I wanted to be a trial lawyer, and all of a sudden, I'm on moot court teams. So even though I've got a couple semesters of tax and real estate finance from law school on my transcript, uh, I didn't really use those. So what kind of law did your parents practice? What kind of stories did you hear around the, around the dinner table growing up? Right. <clears throat> well, my father did a lot of real estate law, um, zoning, and that's where the development exposure kind of came in. 
and my mom did a lot of family law. Um, so it was not heavy personal injury exposure as a kid. It was more, I guess, nuts and bolts of helping people out. Did they practice together or were they in separate firms? No, they were neff and neff uh, as, as they were practicing. Well, my, my kids have grown up with the same sort of background as you, Mike. Uh, where you talk about cases around the dinner table. And, and I can remember in, when they were in high school, their friends would say, do y'all really sit around and talk about like that in politics? And I, I said, yeah, we really do. At the dinner table, we talk about politics and law. The <laughs> so family I'm glad business. To see if they turn yeah. out like you, Mike, I'll be very happy. I'm glad to see you can have a normal upbringing that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure your kids are, are doing good stuff. I know your son's been doing good stuff in, in the art world and yes. your daughter's following in your shoes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's great. Um, ha has your practice always been plaintiff's personal injury? Uh, not always. Uh, I started my practice in 1996 and um I basically was taking front door law uh, cases, whatever came in the front door. And what was really interesting was um, around that time, Michael Crichton had write, written a book, uh, Disclosure, which they made into a pretty bad movie. <laughs> but um, employment discrimination was on a lot of people's minds. And um, I, I took a fair number of employment cases my first three, four, five, six years in practice. And uh, those are hard cases, I learned. But they taught me how to litigate in federal court. And they taught me how to litigate against bigger firms. And I was better for having taken them. So how did you end up in, uh, in, in the great state of Georgia? You're from New Jersey, went, right. to, went to school in DC, then, uh, then uh, at College Station. What, what brought you to the Peach State? Well, it's kind of funny. Um, my family is predominantly from New York uh, City, but uh, two of the Leotas, which is my mom's side of the family, uh, navigated their way down um, south. One taught at uh, Georgia Tech and one taught uh, at Emory. And so there was a connection, at least distantly, and then when I got to law school, my professor was from Atlanta and said really good things. And the Olympics were coming. And the clincher was I, after law school, I visited a college buddy and came down to visit him in February. And we went to the pool and there were a lot of young people hanging out by the pool. And I thought I could dig out of snowstorms up in New Jersey in February, or I could come down to Atlanta and hang out at the pool. And the pool had a, a very motivating influence on me. <laughs> the pool won. None, none of those were Georgia Tech students, though, because they were all off studying. They were studying. I'm sure, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they may have been Emory students. <laughs> You know, that, that, that's great. And as a native Georgian, I think uh, I think I'm the only native Georgian between the three of us. I always uh, uh, love to hear the stories about how other people, uh, you know, uh, come here and, uh, and that other people do uh, love our state. Well, it was crazy. Uh, I was the president of the Atlanta 
JC's in 1996, and I would walk into a meeting or a mixer and ask new people where they're from, and 90% of them were from somewhere else. So it was an easy icebreaker. Cool. Well, now I would say you are known as a plaintiff's trial lawyer. Uh, you take obviously what I would call very significant, uh, serious or catastrophic injury cases or death cases, uh, and you trial. Um, and and we want to talk about some of your trials, but um, and, and I mean, we're going to talk specifically about some of your, your trials. Before we do that, can you talk to us a little bit about your process of getting ready for a trial? Right. Well, getting ready for a trial starts when you get the case to me, because I think uh, we have a commitment in the firm that if we take the case, we have to try it. We have to be prepared to try it. Not every case goes to trial, but I think if you don't prepare cases for trial, um, you, you get behind the eight ball. So um, I'm thinking about trial, you know, when it comes in, I'm thinking about trial during depositions, um, thinking about trial when we're dealing with summary judgment. Uh, so, you know, it is, it is a year, years long process, particularly for the bigger cases. Um, so it, it, it is not a, you know, I pull out the file a month before and sure. write the opening statement for me. It is, um, you know, kind of a longer process where I'm tweaking things as I go along. Yeah. So a lot of the cases that, that you're handling, though, like premises liability cases, um, you know, and, and, and just for our listeners, particularly listeners who, uh, aren't personal injury lawyers and aren't uh, maybe aren't even lawyers. I hope we have a good good bit of those that listen. Uh, you know, a, pr a premises liability case, and there's certainly all different kinds now: negligent security, all, all types of things. But you know, uh, traditionally, the most common kind, I guess, is a slip and fall case. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've often joked that uh, you know, if you if you uh, sent me to a psychiatrist that plays word association games, what pops into your mind when I say they slip and fall, I say summary judgment, because <laughs> that's the one that's the one hurdle that you have to overcome. And, and my impression, at least the cases I've handled, it's not any uh, any less of an issue in non slip and fall premises liability cases than it is uh, in premises liability cases. And I, I, I remember being at Georgia Tech, which is where I took the first law class I ever took, and the professor, uh, you know, telling us uh, we did a case where, you know, you didn't get a jury trial on it. That was I thought you got a jury trial on everything, you know, uh, before I went to law school. So what's sort of drawn you toward these cases that you really have a, a very substantial intellectual and factual challenge to get over summary judgment and to get the case to trial and and how do you plot your way through that well it's crazy sometimes how things come full circle so i i grew up in a real estate kind of environment at home in fact my first job uh, as an 18 year old was as a real estate agent and i would spend all day looking at vacant property owner lists. And I'd 
look to buy non-conforming lots and then my father would help me get a variance and then we'd sell them to builders. So um, it was, you know, I always had this interest in real estate going back to being a teenager and um, thought I would do a lot of development. So property rights were a big deal to me. Um, I mean, I was a finance major in college and um, took a number of real estate classes. So there, there's always been an interest and a passion in that area. And, you know, ironically, um, I'm, I met a woman that is an industrial engineer and uh, managed construction projects and we got married and I had this built in expert that I didn't know about. And, um, you know, I started asking her questions and was amazed at how much I didn't know. Uh, but I started learning and, you know, it kind of snowballed from there because uh, when I got out of law school and I opened my practice, a friend of mine said, well, what are you going to do? What type of law? And I said, I'm going to do personal injury. And he laughed and said, well, we're going to call you slip and fall. And I said, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to do those cases. And lo and behold, I wound up doing some of those cases uh, because what I learned eventually was that there are safety rules in place to, to protect people. And if you follow them, you prevent a lot of people from getting hurt. And if you don't, then people can get seriously injured or killed slipping and falling on a wet floor. Um, and, you know, I think that's kind of the big psychological hurdle to get people from thinking about a banana peel or an insurance scam to thinking about this was preventable and this person's life is never going to be the same. Now, when you take a turn down aisle number three at the grocery store, you don't think your life's about to, you know, it's about to change there, but, uh, but it has for, you know, hundreds and thousands of people, you know, over the years. And I think in some of the cases you do, Mike, they're, they're, um, you have to build them factually as we do every case, but it seems like they're so intricate uh, and the law is so challenging that you must know going into some of your cases, you're going to have a lot of motion practice, uh, a lot of brief writing. It may go up to an appeals court during the case and back down before you ever get to a jury. Um, do you think about that? Do you, do you kind of project that out and say, oh, I don't know, there's too many motions in this case? Or you just take it on and say, well, we're just going to deal with it as, as we meet it? Right. I think it's funny going back to the beginning, uh, the fact that I started out doing a lot of employment law um, kind of set the bar high. Uh, you know, employment law back then, if you beat summary judgment, they paid you. But most of the time you didn't. The Northern District of Georgia had a 90 percent summary judgment rate on employment cases. And I'm proud that I never lost a case in full. I lost part of a case, but I was able to get through that. And so it didn't really phase me um, after doing that for a while. Uh, it, it just, you know, like, okay. You can handle it. It is just part of the road. Yeah. I think, I think the Northern district summary judgment rate is about 98% now. Uh, uh, it, it, it certainly hadn't gone down uh, over the years. Uh, I have a tremendous respect for lawyers that do employment cases because they're hugely important. But, um, 
you know, I kind of realized after five or six years or so that this might not be uh, the area of practice uh, that I'm cut out for. I think of you as, as a trial lawyer. You try a lot of cases. Do you also mediate cases? Uh, yes, especially when we're ordered to. Yeah, uh, which yeah. Of, which often doesn't result in a in a settlement when it's ordered. Right. The the parties have both want to to resolve the case for it to work. I think. Yes. But I just didn't know if you had a inclination not to even suggest mediation. Yeah, that's that's not my default. Um, my philosophy generally is the defendant will pay you when they want to pay you, and there's nothing that I can really do to speed that process up besides my job. And the light bulb either goes on and they want to resolve it, or we keep moving forward. So there's no sense, you know, knocking yourself out that, you know, we're going to get this done next week or next month, or it's just a process that you don't have complete control over. Well, let's talk a little bit about premises liability law. You've talked a little bit about it already, that there are actually safety rules in place so that people can walk across a certain area and and not fear getting injured, um, which we call premises liability. I often call it premises safety. Um, You've written two books about it, uh, which is remarkable. who did you write the books for? Wow. Um, that's that's another story. Um, <laughs> did you I, write them for lawyers or for yes, lay people? Yeah, the books uh, are published by Trial Guides, which is a, a, a niche publisher on the West Coast that provides educational books for trial lawyers, plaintiff's lawyers. All right. So uh, I was motivated by reading a number of their books. Um, like Rules of the Road by Rick Friedman, uh, Polarizing the Case um, by Rick Friedman. Um, David Ball is now getting published by them. So there were some really great authors that were instrumental in my development as a lawyer. And uh, the story kind of goes back to uh, Snowmageddon. I was having lunch with a young lawyer and lost track of time and we got kind of stuck at Lenox Mall. It took me about an hour and a half to drive a mile and a half home. And I was lucky because it took some of my friends nine hours to go three miles. Um, But one of the kind of moments I won't forget from that lunch was the lawyer I had lunch with said to me, Mike, when you were in law school, did you know that you would try a $35 million case? And it was kind of like in Wayne's world where they go back in time and everything gets wavy. I kind of like was transported back to law school, Mike Knapp. And I thought for a couple of seconds and then I said, no, I had no idea that a $35 million verdict existed um, or how to get one uh, or that it was possible. And so that innocent question stuck with me. And a couple of months later, I thought, well, maybe I've got some stories to share. And I wrote a proposal to trial guides and they said, yes, we would love for you to write a book geared towards younger lawyers or lawyers that haven't done premises cases. 
and we want you to write it in a tone like you're having lunch with them, which was easy for me because I have lunch with a lot of lawyers. So that's kind of how it got started. And um, the book I initially wanted to write was kind of like the director's cut of, uh, a cert of certain trials where you, I love reading books where lawyers explain what they were thinking about when they ask certain questions and there's a lot of transcript things. I, I find that insightful and kind of helps me get creative. So I kind of wanted to do something like that, but they, they thought start with, the first book, which will be kind of the introduction, and then we'll let you get into trial stuff later. So your uh, uh, Six Flags, Martin versus Six Flags case, I don't know all the facts, certainly certainly not like somebody who's involved in it, but <clears throat> am I correct, do I recall correctly that the actual injury to the plaintiff in the Martin versus Six Flags case didn't actually take place on Six Flags premises? Is that correct? That's fair to say. Um, that was certainly a, a major point of uh, contention by the defendants that the, the beating took place 200 feet away. Um, and, and you but, may want to talk about the facts of the case, too. I'm not trying to you know, mm -hmm. jump in in the middle of the story, but I, I just remember that little that being yeah. a feature of that case, a feature or a bug one, I'm not sure which. <laughs> Right. So to give the give the listeners a, the setting. This is one of your very large verdicts. This is the thirty five million dollar verdict, right? And mm -hmm. and it was against Six Flags, and you represented a young man who had been beaten, I think, at the bus stop. Um, but tell t set the story for us a little bit. Tell us a little bit about the facts of those that case. Sure, and I just want to give a some significant credit to Gil Deitch who worked on the case with me and then uh, his partner later became Andy Rogers. Um, so Andy Gill and I tried it together. I was fortunate to be lead counsel. Um, you know, they had a trial like two weeks before. So I said, I'll, I'll take lead. And they were, they were good with that. So it was a team effort for sure. Um, but Martin versus Six Flags, was fascinating because of it, it was very much an accordion where you you pulled facts out and you compressed them and there was a major timeline and you know when we got the case we didn't know whether it was going to work or not and uh, you know we took 64 depositions uh, which is a lot that's you a know, lot more than, yeah more than i've ever gotten close to i think the next biggest one I, i've done had 40 um, so it was, it was tremendous amount of legwork in it. And one of the big issues was that Six Flags had gang graffiti in their locker room for 10 years, uh, their employee locker room. So we thought that was an important fact because it gave notice of a hazard. Um, and that Six Flags, when they found gang graffiti in the park, would immediately paint over it because you know, they didn't want their customers to see it, but they also acknowledged that, you know, gang graffiti is kind of like marking your turf and you don't want to let gangs mark your business as their turf. So um, it got into issues of security. Uh, there were off-duty Cobb police officers that had recommended that there be security there seven days a week and Six Flags didn't take that advice because they didn't feel it was in the budget. 
And so you get into a lot of themes about corporate profits versus safety and, um, you know, security rules. And then you get into a timeline. There had been a prior incident in the park involving the same group that wound up attacking Josh. Um, so it, it was, they identified Josh while they were still on Six Flags' property. Uh, many of the group were Six Flags employees. Uh, so there was a lot of evidence um, of a long timeline, you know, going back literally years and years and years. So, uh, you know, we got into issues like how big is an approach and uh, taking control of property that they didn't own because um, Six Flags would do landscaping on Cobb County property going up Six Flags Parkway. And, you know, they, they argued that, you know, this isn't our property and yet it's called Six Flags Parkway. So, and, and they're putting up police officers and they're directing traffic and they're doing landscaping on property they don't own. So, you know, part of the issue is whether you're an owner of land and part of it is whether you're an occupier of land. So there's a lot of facts in that case that gave rise to interpret, interpreting Georgia law or applying Georgia law or building a case theme or case story to kind of convey, you know, that it wasn't in our eyes, a bright line test that Josh didn't get beaten on your property. So you have a free pass. There were a lot of facts that did occur on Six Flags' property. And I think the jury kind of put all of that together and, um, you know, wanted to ensure that Josh was taken care of. I'll say I was fortunate enough uh, to come and see the cross-examination of the CEO of Six Flags. I think Andy Rogers cross-examined her. This is, yeah. be this is before Zoom. Uh, yeah. back, back back when trial lawyers, lawyers would tell each other you're trying a case in so-and-so's court. Um, and I came and watched that. And uh, I, I didn't know it was going to be a $35 million verdict after that, but I knew it was going to be a plaintiff's verdict. I thought the CEO of Six Flags did very poorly, uh, did not hold up well under cross-examination. Um, and, and now, you know, this is a huge verdict and it goes up on appeal. Before we get to that story, because it involves something other than premises, I guess, um, how did it feel when the jury comes back and reads a verdict of, for the plaintiff in the amount of $35 million? What did that feel mm. like? Uh, vindication, uh, justice, um, really uplifting. Um, I had uh, a good friend who uh, is my trial consultant. And she thought we were nuts for having filed that in Cobb County rather than Fulton County. But we felt that a Cobb County juror, despite their reputation for being conservative, would be more appropriate to assess whether Six Flags did the right thing or not. And so I remember smiling and turning around and asking her how she liked Cobb County now. <laughs> so uh, it was that was my my mental victory lap. But. Yeah, it was, it was overwhelming emotionally. I mean, I actually asked Andy to like finish up the last remarks to the 
judge because I was wiped out. Um, I got to give the closing close and um, I had asked for 30 and um, I told them that if they didn't think that was enough, they could give more. And they decided to, which is not very common. Uh, so, um, you know, that was kind of a, a moment where, you know, a lot of things flood through your head. You know, for, uh, for, uh, you know, there's a, there, there's a group of people in society. I, I call them the McDonald's coffee cup crowd, you know, who's, who's read about the McDonald's coffee cup and they think that uh, a jury goes out without any proof of damages. You know, you have to prove everything in your case that there was a duty, there was a breach and you have to prove what the damages are. So the jury doesn't go out and say, Oh yeah. You know, and you know, and even to Robin's point that the CEO didn't do very well on the witness stand, they, you know, they, they, they can't just go out and say, Oh, we didn't like that CEO $35 million. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what your damages were and what your proof of damages were that supported that $35 million? Well, tragically, um, from my perspective, the proof of damages was not the challenge in that case. Uh, Josh had gotten beaten into a coma that lasted about a week. Um, there was a positive MRI and CT scan showing um, brain bleeds. Um, we had uh, testimony from his treating psychiatrist, his treating uh, physiatrist, the physical medicine and rehab doctor. Um, we had testimony from a life care planner, from an economist, um, from his friend's mom, from his grandmother. Um, so, the the damages were there unfortunately um sadly you know i remember asking one of the doctors whether the josh martin that existed on july 3rd still existed and he said no um you know it essentially that josh martin is gone and can never come back so, so very powerful, you know, themes of loss of yeah. identity. And, you know. and I, I think that's one of the things that folks don't realize is that, you know, and I tell clients and potential clients all, that all the time, what's, what's a quote, good case for lawyers. One that's a high value case is not a good case for, for, for the plaintiff, you know, because mm. they've suffered some pretty catastrophic injury. Uh, one other right. thing I want to talk to you about, and I, I, I did uh, one of the, the Midtown shooting case and you ran into the, some of the same kinds of stuff that you're talking about, because, uh, you know, here you've got, I, I, I had one wrongdoer. Well, I had one intentional wrongdoer, uh, but here you've got a whole bunch of uh, wrongdoers that contributed to, uh, to putting Josh Martin in the, you know, where his life's never going to be the same again. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of people uh, who, who would be on a jury who would say, well, this wasn't Six Flags' fault. This was the fault of these wrongdoers that beat Josh Martin up. Talk a little bit about how you handle that and how you overcome that, that handicap. Yeah, well, certainly if, if 
as a lawyer you're going to work on negligent security cases you're going to have to get a handle on the psychological issues involved in suing a property owner um you know for the actions of a non-party or uh, a criminal party um you know so there are safety rules so that's one thing that i go back to i mean security has existed as um as an industry for hundreds of years if not longer um you know kings built castles with moats and you know that's primitive but you know we know better today and there's a big difference between suing you know, a Walmart or Six Flags uh, or a large corporation and suing uh, a mom and pop convenience store with one location. So you, you sue a, a corporation that's got multiple locations, that's got layers of management, that's got multiple security experts with decades of experience, that has access to surveillance cameras and security guards and things like that, has access to um, Cobb County police officers, uh, that's a very different level of sophistication than, you know, you or I that, you know, might have a one location uh, business. Um, you know, it's just a night and day difference. So, you know, you go back to what is ordinary care? What is a reasonable action of someone in the same or similar circumstances? And it's a different process. That standard is the same, but it's a different evaluation to look at what Six Flags should have done, to look at what Walmart should do, um, than it is to to look at Grandma, um, you know, up in Rome, Georgia, with you know a one location store. I mean, you know, it's just very different. So if you follow the security rules, um, people are safe. If you follow security rules, you're acting with ordinary care. Um, and if you choose not to, then I, I think liability is obviously an issue that a jury could decide. And that that issue about wrongdoers and, and a uh, third parties committing crime on the prem premises of another owner, that had to do with ultimately the appeals in the Martin v. Six Flags case, um, as I think the Supreme Court went through the Court of Appeals of Georgia and then the Georgia Supreme Court, and then ultimately the Georgia Supreme Court said, well, you don't, don't have to retry it as to apportionment of fault to the, the, the criminals. Um, you just have to, you, you, you keep the number, I guess. You keep the verdict number. You just have to go back and let the jury apportion some degree of fault to the criminal wrongdoers. Is that fair? Well, the... Yeah, that's very close. Uh, so okay. the, there was a dispute about who should have been on the verdict form and what the consequence of that should have been. And um, the Supreme Court's decision was you've already had this week and a half long trial. Um, the amount of damages it would not be influenced um, by this outstanding issue. Um, so, you know, th that is an issue of two or three, I can't remember, um, well, the dispute over two or three people. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, 
that's how the Supreme Court came down and the case was resolved that's uh, between a, the parties. That I, w- I was reading the, the appellate opinions, and that must have been quite a roller coaster because I believe the Georgia Court of Appeals said you have to go back and retry the whole case. Mm-hmm. And then it's appealed yeah. to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court says, no, not a complete do over, just right. a portion, which, as, as you say, then resolved. Um, the other thing that was startling to me, and, and, it, and it, I think our listeners need to understand the length and breadth of this kind of litigation. The incident to, to Josh happened in 2007, and you didn't get the final opinion from the Supreme Court. Uh, of Georgia until 2017, uh, mm. 10 years since he was first injured. That is a long haul, but it may be yeah, more average for, for your cases. Uh, fortunately, no, but they do tend, especially significant cases, tend to trend three, four, five, six, seven, eight years. Um, yeah. That one was 10. We we had gone up to the Court of Appeals uh, previously, and, um, you know, it was nothing about that case that was easy. Um, let's, let's talk about another two, two more very significant uh, verdicts that you've obtained in the Avis rent-a-car cases. Uh, I think one was Johnson v. Avis, and the other one was Smith, maybe, Smith v. Avis. Right. Um, and as I said in your intro, those two verdicts totaled $54 million. And it was the basic, I think they were tried separately, although the two women were injured in the same uh, incident. Can you tell us a little bit about those two cases? Right. Well, um, yes, it was two lifelong friends who were minding their own business, sitting on a wall on a summer night, and uh, their lives were forever changed when um, someone who worked at the downtown Avis on Cortland um, stole a car and crashed into them. And, uh, you know, one of them lost her leg. Uh, one of her legs and the other one nearly lost her life. Um, and, you know, they both will never walk the same way, obviously, again. So, you know, it was um, a- another situation where we had to fight for, uh, I can't remember if it was six years or eight years. Um, I think it was closer to eight, but yeah, I, I, that's not something I want to focus on in terms of that part of the process, uh, you know, we do the best that we can do. And, um, you know, things are out of our control at a certain point. Was the main legal issue in the Avis rent-a-car cases, was that whether, um, was it a scope of employment that, that he had committed a criminal? He was an employee of Avis, so he had access to the cars through Avis and it, through his job, um, but then goes out and steals a car. Did they talk about that being the approximate cause or was it scope of employment issue or what was the main legal? And I know y'all had a lot of battles in that case. Right. Well, uh, ultimately, the Supreme Court decided that it wasn't foreseeable what happened legally. And so there could not be proximate cause. So um, there, there were certainly a lot of legal arguments before we got there. The, um, 
the, the guy that stole the car was a five-time felon, um, had previously been involved with a car theft, had been suspected of a prior car theft at Avis. Um, so uh, he testified in the second trial that hiring, getting hired at Avis was like hiring a child molester at a daycare center. Oh, man. And Avis's expert from the first trial said hiring Byron Perry was a zero out of 10 decision. So, you know, we did everything that we could do as trial lawyers and sure. And then, you know, the process continues and, you know, there's, there's a sort of, uh, there's a sort of uh, disturbing trend that I see. And I'm, I'm wondering if it's just me or if you or uh, Robin may want to chime in too. But when we talked earlier, I was telling you about when I was at Georgia tech and I first learned, Oh, you don't necessarily get a jury trial. You can get summary judgment. Uh, against you, uh, that's usually where there's no dispute as to the facts. That's just a ruling as a matter of law. I tell clients all the time, you want to sue somebody for sticking their tongue out at you, you're, you're not going to win. That's that's not a violation of, uh, of the law, you know, civil or, or criminal. Uh, but uh, I've been doing this almost 35 years. And, you know, there's a stack of cases that I could stack up to the to the roof here in my study that says questions of diligence, due diligence, cause, proximate cause, and negligence are questions for the jury. Um, and I see so many cases now coming out of, particularly the Court of Appeals, but also this one out of the Supreme Court that uh, seem to me to be taking away uh, citizens' Seventh Amendment rights to a trial by jury to have that determined by a jury. And is that just me? Well, probably not. If you spoke to some members of GTLA, um, you know, I, I think it is, you know, obviously disappointing um, as a lawyer to to lose a case on those grounds, particularly, you know, after a two week trial or a two and a half week trial, um, you know, after years of fighting and after the trial judge made um, rulings that there was a lot of evidence. So, you know, I, you know I've obviously never been a judge. Um, they have difficult jobs. They have to review the facts dispassionately and apply the law. So, um, you know, we're, we don't have those restrictions. We're advocates and, you know, we can be passionate about things and, you know, be happy when we win and be disappointed when we lose. Well, I, I sort of have a rule. I, I don't say anything bad about judges that uh, that I wouldn't say in a dissent. You know, you, you know, some of the right. nastiest things that get said about judges are U.S. Supreme Court and you know some state Supreme Court dissents. And so uh, my difference uh, there is on the law. I just think it's I just think it's flat wrong given the 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 body of jurisprudence on proximate cause. Well, I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, you didn't get a vote on that case. Uh, you'll, still, you'll still need $5 with my opinion to get a cup right. of coffee at Starbucks. Well, so. when, when I reread the, the Georgia Supreme Court opinion um, about it, proximate cause, I thought, just like you, Mike, you, you had so much factual evidence 
to at least make it a jury question about whether that was causation there. I, I mean, all the things you said about Avis and they knew they knew all this uh, and still let him let him have access to the car keys and the in the cars. I, I thought you had done a, a masterful job building up the evidence to say, OK, now let a jury decide proximate cause. It reminded me the other day when I was re rereading the opinion of a suicide case where a, a little girl, Maya versus City of Richmond, Carl Var Varnado had the case, went up to Supreme Court, little girl committed suicide after a police officer from the City of Richmond went around and showed um, pictures of her trying to kill herself in another incident. And lo and behold, yeah. guess what? When all of her friends see those pictures that a police officer had shown to everyone, she really, she was unfortunately successful in, in killing herself. Um, and, and they held there was not enough evidence of proximate cause there. The Supreme Court of Georgia held that. And so that made me think of the Maya case when I reread your your Avis Renicar case. Um, so I, we don't know what to tell you either. It, it, um, well, the, we, yeah, but we the, were with you on that one, Mike. The, the, mm -hmm. the important thing, though, I think to, to remember about that is that a that your, your constitutional right, you know, as established at the time of the Constitution was proximate cause was something that was decided by a jury, not, not, not decided by a court substituting their judgment, you know, for the jury. Right. And, uh, and, you know, I think that's important for us, you know, the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation, because, you know, one of the things that we talk about is the, the importance of the right to trial by jury. Yeah. I, I agree with that for sure, no doubt. Well, let's let's move on to a, another case, uh, um, another verdict of yours, and then we want to talk a little bit about Snapchat before we close, which has not, I guess, hasn't reached a verdict yet. But um, <laughs> let's talk about Veasley uh, versus Monotronics. Another, uh, I guess you would call that premises liability, right? A, a rape in an apartment complex. Your client was raped by by a person. Actually, her home. In her, her home. Okay, her right. home, not an apartment complex. Right, um, we sued the security company. Because her alarm did not function correctly, is that, well, is that what it's like? Well, unfortunately, the alarm mechanically functioned fine, but there was repeated system errors in the human beings who had to act once the alarms came in. And it was, um, you know, a timeline of errors. Um, in fact, we, when we got into litigation, we found that the alarm company had a policy to put alarms on hold so they wouldn't have to repeatedly call um, because they had a rule that if the alarm goes off, you have to call the client and you know advise them of the alarm going off. And they would put the alarm on hold for an hour. Well, the alarm went off at least eight times that we know of before our client came home. And so there was a lot of opportunity, in our view, to warn her, don't go in the house. Um, Which is why you police... have an alarm in the first place, right? Right, right, yeah. Supposedly. So, right, right, yeah. So that was a kind of a policy and procedure case where they, you know, are selling security or safety and then um, they're just kind of whipping forms to, to get through them. And that's not their number one requirement or desire. So that was a really 
um, overwhelming case emotionally to handle. And it was obviously gratifying to, uh, to get a, an excellent verdict. That verdict was $8,640,000. Um, that was the judgment. That was the judgment. Um, it was actually a little it, bit more. And they, they, they said the plaintiff may have been a little contributorily negligent. Is that right? Yeah. The, 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 um, I asked for eight million eight hundred and eighty-eight thousand eight hundred and eighty-eight dollars and eighty-eight cents, and the jury decided to give nine million instead. <clears throat> they they rounded up, or they decided to give more, and they um, held that she was four percent comparatively at fault. I'm not really sure why um, we could get into that, but, um, you know, the overwhelming memory of that case. And, you know, you asked me about justice. Mm -hmm. Um, so this is, this is the case for me, um, that signified justice, um, and still does. Um, after that case was over, we tried it, uh, 10 years ago, November 11th. Uh, so it was November 11 of 2011. So it'll be 10 years in about six weeks. And um, it was a week-long trial. Friday was uh, Veterans Day. So the courthouse was closed except for us. Um, we were the only trial there. And um, it was a holiday weekend. And people obviously wanted to go home, but they did not render a verdict until about 6 o'clock that night. And um, when they announced the verdict, um, we're sitting at or standing at council table, and the 13 of them did not leave through the jury room. Instead, they all walked out single file, stopped at our table, hugged my client, each of them one at a time hugged her, gave her some private words of encouragement one at a time and walked out the middle of the courtroom, <clears throat> the, the, the exit that everyone sees um, and, and enters from. So I had never seen anything like it before or since, but um, that was life affirming to her um she later got the uh, gtla guardian of justice award and uh, she got a standing ovation from the lawyers that were present when it was awarded and she said that the verdict gave her her self-respect back wow that's pretty neat yeah i mean what a moment. That verdict did things that doctors couldn't do, that yeah. lawyers couldn't do. Um, it changed her life. And I think it changed the lives of you know people that were on the jury. You know? I was just going to say, I bet yeah. the, juror, the jurors will never forget her or that case either. Yeah. And then another similar, but not quite as powerful story um you know after the martin verdict came in one of the jurors asked if she could hug me because she appreciated 
how hard we fought for Josh. So, wow. um, you know, that there are people out there that care, you know, you don't hear about it or see it every day, but, um, you can occasionally see where we can tap into a communal vibe and people will take a stand for what they believe in. That that's an awesome moment. Um, I love that story. I am curious how you came up to with the number eight million eight hundred and eighty-eight thousand and eighty-eight dollars and eighty-eight cents. Um, I want to guess, guess that the eight times the alarm went off. Yeah, that's part of it. Um, <laughs> that is part of it. Uh, there were there was a theme of eights. Uh, uh, I never got to explain it to the jury because I ran out of time and closing close. <laughs> So I just gave them the number after, you know, setting it up. There were eight alarms. Uh, she was um, she was held captive for eight hours, a little, almost nine. Mm. So, um, yeah, th there were just eights in, in my head. And unfortunately, there was, you know, objective evidence of harm. I mean, she had PTSD at the highest levels and you know there was some gut-wrenching testimony about how um profound it was that was you know very believable um under the circumstances so uh yeah but there were eights in my head and uh, the jury respected that i guess now um that that case also was appealed. The verdict was appealed yeah. Uh, yeah. on the issue. It, I was just reading the opinion yesterday. It looked like on the issue of a limitation of liability clause in the contract when she bought or signed up with the alarm company and the defense actually tried to limit their exposure to $250 right. uh, based on a limitation. Yeah. But it looked like you kind of uh, handedly took care of their defense of limitation of liability. Court wasn't well, having any of it. My uh, my friend Mike Terry was appellate counsel on that case, so he deserves um, the credit for shepherding it um, after the verdict. So that was one of the issues. There there were other issues, um, but yeah, one of the one of the powerful moments from oral argument in the court of appeals was the appellant's lawyer arguing that it was prominent and then having to take out their reading glasses to uh, <laughs> read the fine print on the back of the contract. So I think that undercut her argument about prominence a little bit. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good story, too. I like that. Well, that what a what a great moment. That's a great trial story, Mike. Um, I'm just, I'm happy for your client. I hope she's doing better. She um, let's talk finally about the, the Snapchat litigation yeah. that you've got going on. I'm aware of um, Maynard v. Snapchat. Right. may have some other Snapchat cases in, in, the, in the country. Um, yeah. Maynard is, is here in Georgia. Um, and I know there are, well, there's, it's already been up an appeal one time. Um, on a um, communications decent 
Decency Act or something like that. But anyway, sure. let's talk about Snapchat, which is a an, an app that folks use on their iPhones. Um, tell us a little bit about what Snapchat does and why you sued them. As all our teenage listeners just laugh that you explained Snapchat to yeah, Ronnie. My, you know, my, that's uh, my we're showing our age it. here. Yeah, we're showing our age here. It's it's on Android phones too. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, all right. It, yeah, it's it's a huge company. Uh, it was started by some Stanford College students. Um, it came to uh, prominence uh, because the messages were disappearing and. Um, uh, presumably, uh, people were using it for sexting. Uh, I do not know anything about that. It's not part of our case. Um, but troubling, to sum up, probably 85, 90% of Snapchat's users are between 13 and 25. And um, so you're dealing, obviously, with a lot of young people whose brains are not fully developed who don't have great discretion, great maturity, or great judgment through no fault of their own. And um, what they decided to do in um, whatever reasons they have, but I understand eyeballs um, equal advertisers equals dollars. They decided to um, publish or put out a, an application that people could track their speed. Um, so what happened was that there were reports of people posting themselves driving at 100 miles an hour or more. And um, this predictably leads to some bad results. You have uh, inexperienced young drivers, sometimes driving late at night, going very fast. Um, and people got hurt. And one of the people that got hurt was uh, Wentworth Maynard, um, my client. Before he got hurt, there was a petition on the internet asking Snapchat to take the speed filter down. Um, that didn't happen. Um, Wentworth got hit in a rear end collision um, and suffered brain damage. Um, a couple years later, uh, in Wisconsin, uh, three teenagers were driving at an inappropriate speed and crashed, and they all died. Uh, so we have a case involving the two passengers in district court in California, and we have a case uh, for Wentworth and his wife uh, pending in front of the Georgia Supreme Court I think uh, the arguments the 21st of October. So we're about three weeks away from oral argument. Great. Um, Naveen Ramachandrapa has done an uh, amazing job on the appeals. Um, we have not been in a position to do discovery because the courts are really struggling with how to apply the law to this quote, new technology. Um, you know, however, as Judge McFadden had pointed out in his dissent in a 2-1 decision, um, this is a defective design products liability case, which 
has nothing to do with technology. The law is old. Um, so we are hopeful that the Georgia Supreme Court will see it that way. And, um, you know, we are we're trying to get our days in court uh, on behalf of both sets of clients. Uh, so that that case against Snapchat would be you're talking about defective design of the app. Do you, is that correct? So it's more like a products liability case. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. And I've got the opinion here um, where the, the judge presiding judge Doyle, who wrote the opinion, held the manufacturer of Snap, Snapchat did not owe the driver a duty to alter product design to prevent injuries from a third party's misuse of the speed filter feature. But then, as you said, in Judge McFadden's dissent, he he writes, I respectfully dissent. At this time, it cannot be said that the allegations of the, the complaint disclose with certainty that the Mainers would not be entitled to relief under any state of provable, provable facts. The novelty of the technology and the circumstances at issue should not distract us. There is nothing novel about the legal question before us. The Maynard's allegations fall squarely within the requirements for stating a claim for defective design implicating risk utility analysis. Um, right. So very, very interesting case. I call it cutting edge. I, I know there have been some other cases against uh, apps, against manufacturers or designers of apps. But um, to me, I, I think about foreseeable. Was it foreseeable that someone would use this speed filter, which is designed to do exactly what these young people were doing with it. Speed. Let's, let's see how fast we can go and, and then show all of our buddies on Snapchat. Right. Yeah. It seems there very are, foreseeable. There are a lot of psychological um, issues that we have not been able to get into with regard to the adolescent brain and its ability or inability to assess risk. And, you know, the, the propriety, the risk utility of putting this into their hands with, you know, the possibility of getting, you know, social recognition for being an outlier. I mean, it just seems pretty straightforward to me, but of course, my opinion is what it is. And, you know, I'm representing people. Seems pretty straightforward to me. Also, it seems very foreseeable that they would use this in exactly the manner in which they did, and that that would exactly injure somebody in the manner it did. So, um, and you said that oral argument in the Supreme Court is what day? October 21st. Okay, so um, I noticed that GTLA and AAJ had both written amicus briefs on, yeah. uh, on your side of the case. So that's yes. always very helpful when you have other professional associations backing your argument up. Um, and for our listeners, if they want to, I assume, would they show it by Zoom, the oral yes. argument, so they could watch on the Georgia Supreme Court website, which is gasupreme.us, and then I think they're live streamed, even if they're even yeah, if they're that's right, not, they're live not by Zoom. That's right, they are live streamed, so our listeners can watch that oral argument, uh, and we'll be in for a treat with the, with that case as well. But we wish you good luck on that, Mike. Thank you. So, Mike, tell us a little bit first. Uh, we, we've talked a lot about your successes um, 
it sounded like the Veasley case might been might have been one of your highest high moments in your career. But do you have a favorite moment or or um, you know a highlight that you like? This was this was it. This was the highlight of my career so far. Yeah, um, that moment where the jurors hugged her is is a highlight. It's not the biggest verdict, um, but it was you know, like a movie scene. That, uh, that's exactly you know, what I was going to say. It sounds yeah. like something out of a movie. Yeah. I think as a, as a trial lawyer, you know, growing up, we read books and we see movies and we're inspired. And, you know, some of us hope that someday we could be part of something important like that. And, uh, that really was a culmination of a lot of years of struggling and fighting and, learning and trying to get better and all those types of things. Do you have any, what we would call personal tenets or beliefs or religious beliefs, anything that you as a person bring into your practice and, and that, that kind of informs the way you practice law? Yeah. I mean, not anything easily quotable. I know. I, I think um, I do take cases personally. You know, there's there's a professional school of thought that, you know, we're just advocates and we could argue both sides if we wanted to or needed to or called upon it. And uh, that isn't it for me. I, I would not um, be a good defense lawyer, uh, even in a focus group. <laughs> I have not been a good defense lawyer. I've been permanently retired um, from even being a defense lawyer in a focus group. So. Um, you know, I, I have, uh, you know, a passion for, you know, fighting for the underdog. And I think, you know, when you look at the legal system, um, the resources that a company like Snapchat can, you know, throw at a defense um, are extraordinary. And most people aren't in a position to put up a good fight. And so I think in the right case, you know, we need people to take a stand and fight for things that we care about. And, you know, I think when we get to damages in a catastrophic case or a, a wrongful death case, you're dealing with um, universally important issues or, you know, themes that everybody could probably agree on, regardless of whether they're a Democrat or a Republican or what their parents look like. What would you want the general layperson, as I call them, and I think Lester does too, the average walking around person? The average that, juror. Yeah, yeah, the average, our folks, the juror, the average walking around person to know about trial lawyers. Hmm. Well, um, I think that people should try and keep an open mind. You know, there are a lot of movies and books that show shady lawyers, uh, shysters, ambulance chasers, all of these kind of long held um, pejorative terms. Um, and yet there are also uplifting movies like To Kill a Mockingbird and A Few Good Men you know, even the verdict, you know, where lawyers have to pull their stuff together and 
do something important. And so I, I think it's an interesting cultural experience we have in America with lawyers in that a lot of times they're hated until people need them. And then a lot of times people love their lawyer because they actually see this person cares and works hard and sacrifices and, you know, is trying to do the best that they can. And that's, you know, that's without talking about money or risk or, you know, case expenses or any, you know, any of that. It, it, I think lawyers that are good lead with their hearts and their heads and, you know, their wallets are behind. Um, there are some that lead with their wallets, but, you know, no industry is perfect. Um, keep an open mind and look at the evidence in the law. That's all lawyers want or I, should I, want. I think, I think that's one of the great things about having you as a guest today is that, uh, I think there's a, uh, and, and you know, look, over 90%, uh, probably, uh, well, over 95% of civil cases end up settling. And there are a lot of people that think, well, you get a lawyer, they're going to settle your case for, you know, you even have clients call it, when is my case going to settle, you know, from time to time. And you know, you're talking about the kind of cases you've worked on, Michael, you know, 10 years laboring in the vineyards, uh, uh, sometimes fruitlessly laboring in the vineyards to do that. And I think that's a side of uh, lawyers that, that, that you represent well and uh, uh, that, that the public needs to know about. Well, thank you. You know, I've had a lot of help along the way, um, had a lot of mentors along the way. And I think that's another thing that most lay people aren't aware of is that, you know, we don't come out of law school as lawyers. We evolve and the good ones are ones that are always trying to get better. Um, but it's, it's not an overnight process. It, it really takes years and years and years after law school to approach good. And it takes years and years and years after to get better than that. So none, it's, none of us, none of us turtles got up on the fence post by ourselves. So, yeah, that's a, an expression I heard from Jim Butler that confounded me coming from New Jersey. Um, but I'm, I'm getting it now. <laughs> Well, Mike, I thought it was been, a joke. <laughs> you get it now. Uh, yeah. it's, it's been a treat talking about these cases with you. Um, we ask our guests at the end of the program, every one of our guests, what is their definition of justice? Uh, and we've gotten some incredible answers. So I I'm, can't wait to hear, hear yours. What is your definition of justice? Oh, uh, you know, when I when I was asked that, I kind of just got overwhelmed by the, the photograph in my mind of uh, the people hugging my client in Monotronic's case. So I, I think I don't have a pithy expression of what justice is, but I think it happens when people draw a line in the sand and say, uh, what happened is not okay. And I'm going to stand up and say something about that L last story for today. But um, you mentioned the cross-examination of Six Flags as CEO. Well, um, I got to watch that from council table because Andy handled it. And there was a female juror um, smiling at the CEO during her testimony. 
And it really freaked me out. I'm like, geez, I, I don't understand. I thought we were doing really well. Why is this woman smiling at the CEO? And I got to find out after the, the verdict. So when the CEO came out, she faced the jury and flashed this big smile at the jury. And uh, this juror who wound up being the foreperson didn't appreciate that. And so she gave the fake smile back throughout the cross-examination. And of course, I had no idea of that until the very end. So I was like sleepless the night before closing argument, wondering, you know, did we lose this person or do other people feel that way? And I think that's kind of indicative of decent people being confronted with evidence and saying, you know what, I'm not going to take this. This isn't right. And that is what makes our country special from a lot of other countries because people, everyday citizens don't have the power to stand up to big corporations and tell them that's unacceptable. We're not going to take that. So that's justice to me. Great answer. Awesome. Awesome. Mike, it's been such a pleasure having you on. We we greatly appreciate your spending a little bit of your afternoon with us. And um, good luck on Snapchat. And we'll be listening and keep doing what you do. All right. Thanks a lot. Appreciate Thank the you. Thanks, mm-hmm. Mike. Every podcast that we do, we finish up with a news article, a recent news article that Robin and I have seen that relates to the civil justice system that we want to share with our audience. Uh, sometimes Robin and I coordinate ahead to make sure we don't have the same one. We may today. We have not. Uh, we have not rigged the system today. Uh, but I'm going to let Robin go first today and and give hers. Okay. Thanks, Lester. Mine is an article that came out yesterday. Uh, and it deals with lawyers' ethics. And the, the title of the article is Lawyers' Unfamiliarity with Facebook Privacy Settings in 2008, Nets Win an Ethics Case. So the New, Jer- New Jersey Supreme Court dismissed an ethics charge against a New Jersey lawyer who was accused of using his paralegal to friend an opposing party uh, and they, they dismissed it after concluding the lawyer did not understand Facebook privacy settings. So this goes back to 2008, uh, quite a long time ago. Um, but in a lawsuit, this guy was a defense attorney and plaintiff is bringing a personal injury lawsuit against this defense attorney client. And the defense attorney asked his paralegal to act like a friend of the plaintiff and friend the plaintiff on Facebook. Uh, so that he could get access to what he thought would be incriminating information against the plaintiff. I think there was a video of the plaintiff wrestling, and he thought that video occurred after the incident uh, involving the lawsuit where the plaintiff was injured. And the the plaintiff's attorney said, I'm going to file an ethics complaint against you, which he did. And um, ultimately, the New Jersey Supreme Court came down in favor of the defense lawyer, tossed the ethics charge, but only on the basis that back then, way back in 2008, the defense lawyer didn't know enough about it 
didn't understand what a privacy setting was. He thought he testified in front of the in front of the Supreme Court or the ethics investigation that he thought it if you befriended someone on Facebook, whatever they put on Facebook was open to anyone in the world who wanted to see it. He didn't understand. I don't know if that's really true or not. But that's what his testimony was. And Supreme Court said, well, we're, we're going to give you a pass because back in 2008, you probably didn't know that. I think today, 2021, that that defense is not going to fly in front of an ethics charge. Uh, get I think a different, different result. There. You would have a different result now um, because our, I, I can tell you what I think our Georgia Supreme Court would do with it is they would discipline a lawyer for doing that, behaving like that, doing that. And I'm also a little surprised and shocked that an, an ethics complaint filed in 2008 was finally decided in 2021. And that lawyer had to go through that uh, ultimately exonerated. But that long of having an ethics complaint over your head, that's amazing or startling or shocking or whatever you want to say. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you did not steal mine, uh, but I do have an article that is from your home state uh, newspaper, the Louisville Cur uh, Courier Journal uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, Robin's, Robin's home state. Uh, it came out on September it's, the 13th. It's actually a Commonwealth. Commonwealth. That's right. I, I, for, <laughs> I, I forgot about I forgot about that. And, it's my and, home and, Commonwealth. That's right. That's right. So uh, it is an article about Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett, who appeared at a crowd at, at a function in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, with a crowd of more than 100. And I want before I go into this, I want to emphasize that I am not picking on Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, I'm, I'm picking on a lot of Supreme Court justices, including Stephen Breyer, who had made some similar comments uh, before. They're both from recognized as being from different wings of the court. But uh, she began her speech by saying, my goal is to convince you that this court is not comp comp comprised of a bunch of partisan hacks, she told the guest at a Sunday celebration of the 30th anniversary of the opening of the McConnell Center at the University of Louisville. Uh, she says, judicial philosophies are not the same as political parties. She said, noting that she identifies as an or originalist and citing fellow Justice Stephen Breyer, and I, I, I told you I was going to talk about him a little bit too. There's a similar article about him where he says, uh, instead of my goal is to convince you we're not partisan hacks, he says, we're not junior varsity politicians. And there's also been similar statements by Clarence Thomas and other members of the Supreme Court. But she said, judicial philosophies are not the same as political parties. She said, uh, noting that she identifies as an originalist, originalist and that uh, uh, Justice Breyer identifies uh, from the main school of thought of pragmatism. Uh, I, I think that the Supreme Court, and there were several polls that came out that shows the Supreme Court's approval rating is an all-time low. We do not have uh, justice by plebiscite. You know, that's the one branch of government where might is not supposed to make right, just because you, you don't go take an opinion poll to do that. But I'm very concerned about all this talk that goes on about, well, I'm not a political party. This is my judicial philosophy, because the outcome of any case is supposed to be based on what the facts of that case are 
and what the uh, what the law is that's in existence at that time, either it be legislatively or it be by uh, prior uh, binding decision of the courts, uh, the, the higher courts in that particular state or in the federal system. And so I think for a litigant to hear that and say, well, I've got my case down here, but how many pragmatists do we have? What's the, what's the school of thought? And I may lose because somebody's got a different school of thought uh, about my case. It's just absolutely horrifying uh, to me. And uh, I think a big part of that comes from people who are put on the court because they have that judicial philosophy by political parties who adhere to that same political philosophy. And a lot of them have never set foot in a courtroom before uh, in their life or represented real people. And uh, I think there's a real crisis going on here. And I applaud uh, uh, Justice Chief Justice John Roberts because he was a very skilled advocate in front of the United States Supreme Court prior to the time that he went on the bench. And I think he's really tried to uh, walk the walk instead of talk the talk, which is what appears uh, could be happening uh, with, with some of the others. And, you know, I'm not a junior varsity, varsity politician or, or a political hack. Uh, the last thing I'll say about that is I think any lawyer that has spent a lot of time in a courtroom trying to convince judges and juries of something would never make the argument. This, whatever you say, this case is not about. Whoever's listening to it knows that's exactly what it's about, and that's sort of the that sort of tips the hand. But that's my tirade uh, for today. Well, it reminds me of a comment that Justice John Few from the South Carolina Supreme Court. Uh, bench what Justice Few said at our CBOTA conference last weekend when he was talking, and we, we asked him a similar question about that, uh, not exactly the yes. same, but a similar, and, and his point was exactly what you're saying. You take a judge's job is to take the facts, apply the law, and it comes out the way it comes out, and he mentioned two different um, opinions that the South Carolina Supreme Court had just recently issued. One came out one way, one came out the other. Basically, um, similar facts, but different laws applied to the entities involved in the case. And he said, that's how you do it. You do, it's, it's blind justice. You take the facts, you apply the law, and however it comes out is the way it comes out. You don't have a, an originalist bent or, uh, you know, textualist bent. Um, when, I, when I think of originalists, I think, okay, what are they going to do with Snapchat? because there was no Snapchat in the Constitution. Right. And I, and I mean, look, I, I understand what people are talk, talk about when they say they have a judicial philosophy. I mean, it, we, we, you know, we have uh, philosophies of advocacy, you know, about how you can best advance your client's case, what to do about that. You know, I understand that those are supposed to be, and, and I think this is one of the great things that's lost in this country today. Those are supposed to be descriptive of sort of maybe how you behave over time. Like he's a really good quarterback or, you know, he's a lousy linebacker, you know, they're not supposed to be prescriptive of the outcome of that case. Of each case. Of yeah. each case. And I think that's the, that that's, that's the real problem that we're starting to see. And when you've got Supreme court justice going around the country saying, I'm not a partisan hack. I'm not, uh, uh, I, I'm not a junior varsity politician. Uh, it is, in my view, very troubling for our system of justice. Good point. And speaking of that, they start the United States Supreme Court 
comes back on Monday. First, first Monday, Monday in October. First Monday in October. They're they're That's back. That's correct. That's correct. As some folks would say, gird your loins. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's like they used to say about similar things about the legislature being in session. I've heard, I've heard that, I've heard that, uh, heard that too. So, uh, well, this has been a great podcast today. Great, Robin. a great uh, episode. Great to catch up with you, and and uh, great job by Mike Neff. And until next time, we will we'll see you, see in, you court. in court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court. Brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to cuincourtpodcast at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who helped bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.